Moby Dick energy a healthier coping mechanism than alcoholism. Moby Dick energy. Big Moby Dick energy. I want that Moby Dick. I want that energy. I want that Moby Dick energy. Big Moby Dick energy. I want that Moby Dick. That Moby Dick energy. I want that Moby Dick energy. Big Moby Dick energy. Hello and welcome to Moby Dick Energy, the podcast where I, your host, Talia Lavin, goes through Herman Melville's queer whaling masterpiece, chapter by chapter, um, with an array of amazing guests. And once again, I'm forced to apologize for um, being a bit uh, off schedule and um, missing a couple of weeks. I hope you'll forgive me. There's a pandemic, uh, I had a book out, and um, also a white whale ate my homework. It's also my fault. Hello, I'm the producer, Ilana. Anyway, sorry about that. Also, give Talia your money. But we're back on track and hopefully going to keep pumping out episodes. So with me today, I'm excited to have the producer and writer, most recently of the book Novel Advice. Uh, Jay Bushman. Hello, Jay. Hello, Talia. I am so excited uh, to be here. As uh, as I as I mentioned earlier, I have been uh, been a huge fan of this podcast, and it's been one of the high points of this terrible 2020. And it's really helped me uh, get through this year. So uh, I'm I'm so so thrilled uh, to be with you today. Well, Moby Dick energy a healthier coping mechanism than alcoholism that's that's my slogan for this podcast um (laughs) i'm very happy to be able to bring anyone any measure of solace i know for me it's very lovely to be able to stick my head in in melville for you know an hour a week um and just not think about plagues or coups or anything except you know the the storm-tossed sea and um the fates and whales and and whatnot um so jay tell us a little bit about your new book and how it relates to moby dick absolutely so the book is called novel advice and the subtitle is practical wisdom for your favorite literary characters and the conceit is that um, it's like a, a book a collection of letters written to an advice columnist. But the people who are writing in um, asking for help with their problems are all characters from famous literature um, and from all across the canon. And so, you know, going from the Iliad and the Odyssey all the way up to uh, Catcher in the Rye and American Psycho. Um, but the specific overlap, uh, I think for, for, um, this podcast is, uh, two of the people who write in are Ishmael and Ahab, um, write in for, uh, asking for help with specific, uh, problems that they're having. And then the other kind of, uh, side of it is that the person who is answering their 
um, their letters, who was giving the advice. Um, uh, what they used to call uh, people who who wrote advice columns, the term they used to use was agony ant. Mm-hmm. And so this isn't an agony ant. This is Aunt Antigone. Um, so it's uh, Antigone from the, the from the, the Greek from Antigone. tragedies. Yes. And she is using her long experience, um, having lived and died through tragedy, to help other fictional characters deal with the problems that they're dealing with in their uh, in their stories. And, you know, the way that it, it kind of comes together is um, fictional characters don't know they're fictional. They don't realize they're in stories. They don't realize that they're caught in a web that an author is spinning around them and that they exist to uh, to carry a narrative or to convey theme. They just to themselves think they're real and um, don't know that we've read their stories again and again and again and again. Mm-hmm. And so this is a thing that I always find really kind of uh, challenging is, you know, we as as readers, like we've read Hamlet a million times. Uh, if if you have, uh, uh, if that's your, you I mean, know, I've read speed. Hamlet. I wouldn't say a million times, but like, but you I've know, d- even if you've Hamlet. seen like a, even if you've seen like lousy um, community theater productions, we all sort of at this point think of Hamlet as that guy who just can't make a decision. Um, but the decision he has to make is, you know, to kill the king of the country because his the ghost of his dead father did. And if we all were in his position, we maybe would take a second to think about, you know, whether or not that's something we want to do. And so trying to, trying to take these characters and pick a point in their story where they don't know what's going to happen, even though we do, and and treat that question and that problem um, as something that maybe a real person might have to, you know, think about whether or not they want to do. Um, and so when I started working on the book, I, you know, in the initial the initial pitches, I actually was going to have Ishmael write in three or four times um, <laughs> over the course of, you know, it's like, hi, me again. Uh, so uh, and that ended up not coming together. But it was it was very important that uh, that both Ishmael and, and Ahab were represented um, in this book. Yeah. Um, well, so I thought maybe to kick things off before we dive into the chapters, we could read um, at least one of the Moby Dick letters from uh, from novel advice. So would you prefer Ishmael or Ahab? Let's do Ishmael. Um, I I love Ishmael. He's he may be my fav one of my favorite characters in all of literature. Um, and I'm a big I'm a big Ishmael partisan. So let's, you know, let's 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 read Ishmael. Okay, great. So would you like to be Aunt Antigone? Or, uh, yeah. Okay, so I'll, in that case, I will read Ishmael as soon as I figure out what the heck I did. Okay, yeah. Here we go. Um, Dear Aunt Antigone, Through a rather peculiar set of circumstances, I found myself forced to share a room and a bed with a stranger whilst boarding in New Bedford. Naturally, I was reticent at first, especially after hearing the wildest descriptions of his character from the landlord. 
including a troubling tale about how he was out peddling heads. When I first laid eyes on him, I found his manners quite queer and savage. He is covered in tattoos, worships a little wooden idol, and sleeps with his tomahawk. He may even be a cannibal. Surely he's no Christian. But in spite of all that, I quickly discovered his true nobility. He is a marvel, towering like a mainmast, strong as a grampus, and his head is excellent, phrenologically speaking. On entering a room, all eyes turn to watch him. A loving, affectionate comedy has sprung up between us. I was not seeking a new bosom companion. My only thought was of shipping out on a whaleboat. As fate would have it, my friend is an experienced harpooner and seeks a similar situation. He has proposed we ship together, but on the cusp of plunging forward, I find a curious timidity arising. While my splintered heart lifts at the thought of a three-year voyage in his society, is it rash to splice hands with such haste? Is it sensible to distrust the sudden flame of affection? Or am I in the grip of another one of my hypos? Call me sheepish. Dear Sheepish, is there anything better than meeting someone who you instantly connect with? Language, customs, habits, philosophies can all fall away through a simple, powerful connection between two like-minded souls. I would be remiss if I did not point out that the manner in which you describe your new friend, the way you deflect the ogling of his physicality onto others, the coziness of your shared domesticity, and even your choice of the word proposed, I'll suggest some deeper prodding is necessary to sound the depths of your feelings, but regardless, the central question remains, only knowing a few things about him. Can you trust that your blazing affections will last for the duration of your time together? Put another way, can you rely on your feelings about him? Do you have complete trust that he reciprocates your affections? Do you truly know what he's thinking? Are you honestly certain of what he wants? How can you know if you're making the right decisions? In many ways, this is the problem underlying all others. Who can truthfully interpret what hides behind the mask of a smiling face on your dearest love? What do you need to know to allow yourself to trust him utterly? Is there some amount of proof that will ever be enough? You can certainly decide to pursue that evidence, but you may discover the more you find, the more you need, until you are gorged on facts, but starved of meaning. And then you'll have to admit that what you're really after isn't proof, but a guarantee that you'll be safe, that you won't get hurt this time, that it's all right to be vulnerable. But there are no guarantees and there never can be. Anybody who tries to tell you that they know the absolute truth is peddling false coin. What you're really searching for is faith, which is by definition trust devoid of proof. To accept that means embracing that other people and the wide world are unfathomable mysteries. You can try to hold fast to some meaning or purpose and hope it doesn't smash you to splinters, or you can choose to stay loose and follow where the wind or your heart takes you. Ant Antigone. Aww, I think that's great. That's, that's, I like that a lot. And I like that, that categorization of the relationship between Ishmael and, and, uh, and, and Queequeg and about love and faith. Ooh, that brings up a lot of, 
of lovely thoughts and feelings. So thank you for sharing well, that with Thank us. you for allowing me to. Um, um, this one means means a lot to me, and, and it's sort of a key. Uh, most of the book is written this way, where you know there are little um, allusions and images and things that I pulled from Moby Dick and threaded throughout Antigone's response. Not so much so that it seems like she's read the book, so she's, you know, <laughs> telling telling him the answer. Um, but um, especially there's that last couplet at the end. I know the podcast hasn't reached this point yet, but there's my favorite chapter in the book. I don't remember what number it is, is Fast Fish and Loose Fish. Um, and so the the hold fast or stay loose couplet at the end is is that that meant a lot to me to, to be able to put that in. Yeah, it sounds like you are a big, uh, big fan of the book. Um, yeah. And as you told me, though, it sort of lives in your heart. And it's been a while since you've had the, the occasion to kind of dive back in, especially in a sort of um, like minute, as minute a way as this podcast demands. So um, without further ado, let's dive into chapter 50. Ahab's boat and crew, Vidala. So, you know, I like to harass um, my guests and make them offer me plot, like plot summaries of the generally meandering and somewhat plotless uh, chapters of Moby Dick. So, can you tell us in like one or two sentences what happens in this chapter? I can probably do it in three sentences because this is one of one of those those chapters of this book. Whenever the whenever the um whenever this the title of the chapter has a semicolon in it, you know like it's like, oh, Herman's like jamming a whole bunch of different things into one into one container. So there is there's three things here. The first is this little um uh flask and stub have a discussion about um, how strange it is that Ahab would have his own whale boat um, because he's missing a leg. And that opens up a discussion about whether or not whale captains have uh, their own, uh, go out on their own whale boats or do they, or that they usually stay on the ship while the mates go out and the sort of history of that and we learned that all, that we that Ishmael forgot to tell us about all this foreshadowing. Um, that Ahab's been working on these pins, and Ahab's been working on this boat, and people have been like, "That's peculiar. Uh, I, I, why is he? Maybe they're just making sure this is this backup boat is ready to go." Um, and that leads us to a long and um, not entirely comfortable. Um, Description of Fadala. Melville's really weird about race. Uh, the chief of uh, the secret uh, boat crew that has been hiding on the ship for a long time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, first of all, maybe I should start rephrasing these forced descriptions as describe this chapter in the time it would take me to walk you off the plank because <laughs> you, just, you just went deep. I like it, though. Um, but then, um, yeah, I mean, the other, it's basically like consideration, a little consideration of the role of a captain and then um, an uncomfortable piece of Orientalism. So <laughs> I want to address that. It is the elephant in the room. In general, as we've discussed on this podcast many times before, 
Um, the crew of the Pequod is a multicultural crew of different races, and Melville's gaze um, on the non-white members of the crew uh, is this odd mix of sort of exoticization and desire, um, and often imputing all sorts of moral characteristics um, to the appearance of of non-white members of the crew. And here we have some very Orientalist tropes about Fidala, who um, is, I believe, Filipino. Um, and, or, or meant to be. Um, That's something I, I find continually confusing because it's he's referenced different ways in different parts of the book. In some places, it seems like he's Filipino. In other, I believe, if I remember correctly, somewhere else he's called a Parsi. And uh, if if memory serves, the Parsi were were Persians who left Iran and moved to India. Um, so I mean, I think it's all part of the same Orient Orientalist stew that you know Melville isn't like paying that much difference that much heed to the differences between those things. They're all just sort of this other, um, yeah. Oh yeah, I'm seeing he is of Indian Zoroastrian Parsi descent. And is described as having lived in China. So yeah, he's he's from India, he's from China, he's Persian. He's basically gets to be the like wild East in all of its unspecified but but very mysterious and full of weirdly like projected moral meanings. Um, even though he's really just a dude and he wears a turban. We learn a lot about his turban. Um are they saying, is he saying at the end, is he trying to tell us at the end of this chapter that Fidala is, is a devil, is a child of a devil and a mortal, uh, a mortal woman? That's kind of how it, re I, it, it seems like it reads. You know, well, let's, let's chew through the chapter first and then we'll read okay. the last two paragraphs in Toto because I think they are. They're like a very Melvillian conversation, like combination of just like really lush and lovely prose, and then like very troubling racial othering <laughs> that makes this always oh, a spicy meatball. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah, we have Flask and Stub at the beginning saying like, you know, oh my gosh, Ahab, you know, because they, they're just back from from their first lowering. Um, and Ahab has gone off with his crew and he has, you know, joined the tempestuous chase and ultimately futile chase against the first whale we've actually seen in the book. Um, and they're basically discussing, like, he, he doesn't have a leg. Like, one of his legs is gone. Should he be whaling? Um, and... And there's this sentence, uh, considering that with two legs, man is but a hobbling white in all times of danger. Considering that the pursuit of whales is always under great and extraordinary difficulties, that every individual moment indeed then comprises a peril. Under these circumstances, is it wise for any maimed man to enter a whale boat in the hunt? As a general thing, the joint owners of the Pequod must have plainly thought not. Um... So this is the reason why Ahab has has smuggled on his whaleboat crew as like basically stowaways, 
and why, as we learn in this sort of lovely and elaborate next paragraph, he's um, secretly fitted out a whaleboat to his needs and made it accessible um, to him. I'm wondering, can you read maybe the the back part of this paragraph? Uh, so starting from, uh, nevertheless, he had taken private measures of his own. Sure. Let me see. Where is that? Nevertheless. Trying to find it on my copy of I've got Power Moby Dick up right here and I'm trying to find where does that start? Nevertheless. Ah, got it. Okay. Nevertheless, he had taken private measures of his own touching all that matter. Until Cabaco's published discovery, the sailors had little foreseen it. Though to be sure when, after being a little while out of port, all hands had concluded the customary business of fitting the whaleboats for service, when sometime after this Ahab was now and then found bestirring himself in the matter of making tholpins? Well, guess that's how that's pronounced. Uh, with his own hands for what was thought to be one of the spare boats, and even solicitously cutting the small wooden skewers, which when the line is running out, are pinned over the groove in the bow. When all this was observed in him, and particularly his solicitude in having an extra coat of sheathing in the bottom of the boat, as if to make it better withstand the pointed pressure of his ivory limb, and also the anxiety he evinced in exactly shaping the thigh board, or clumsy cleat, as it's sometimes called, the horizontal piece in the boat's bow for bracing the knee against and darting or stabbing at the whale. When it was observed how he stood up in that boat with his solitary knee fixed in the semicircular depression in the cleat, and with the carpenter's chisel gouged out a little here and straightened in a little there, all these things, I say, had awakened much interest and curiosity at the time. But almost everybody supposed that this particular preparative heedfulness in Ahab must only be with a view to the ultimate chase of Moby Dick, for he had already revealed his intention to hunt that mortal monster in person. But such a supposition did by no means involve the remotest suspicion as to any boat's crew being assigned to that boat. Yeah, I think I love the kind of richness of the detail there. Um, but it also underscores this idea that, like, basically any encounter with a whale in to Ahab could be the encounter with Moby Dick. I mean, it's like you don't know who your guy is until you've got him on the line, um, almost. Mm -hmm. And so Ahab is not taking any chances, and he's, like, fitted out this boat, um, per this you know, he's chiseled the thigh board to fit his leg. Um, and I think that's sort of, it's a lovely sort of nautical detail. Um, I also love imagining more of these conversations like we get at the top between Stubb and Flask where they're like, what's, what's the old guy doing? Oh, he's just, you know, putting that on the bottom of the boat. Well, why? That's a spare boat. We don't need that. I don't know. Maybe, you know, he's the boss. Like, who knows what the boss wants to do? And all of these sort of like little conversations between the crew going, oh, what's going on? Oh, I don't know. Um, and then suddenly it becomes clear. Oh, that's what he was doing. Yeah. Insofar as like this is a story about labor, like Ahab is just the worst boss imaginable. <laughs> like the most inscrutable, moody boss ever. Anyway. Pretty much. Um, so then we have the last two paragraphs and I don't think we'll read them 
in hold because we have the spirit spout to get to and that's a big chapter but i do love this line in a whaler wonders soon wane like basically it's very hard to shock a whaleman mm-hmm. um you know and so we you know the, sh- the ships themselves often pick up such queer castaway creatures found tossing about the open sea on planks bits of wreck oars whaleboats canoes blown off japanese junks and whatnot that Beelzebub himself might climb up the side and step down into the cabin to chat with the captain, and it would not create any unsubduable excitement in the foxhole. Um, sorry, I had a fan write in and be like, you are saying forecastle and it's foxhole. <laughs> and I'm like, I appreciate it. I don't really know how to say foxhole either. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm like, foxhole, foxhole, whatever. <laughs> Something like that. Potato, potato. Yeah. Anyway, then we have some Orientalism. Um, unchanging Asiatic communities, the Oriental Isles to the east, the insulated, immemorial, unalterable countries, which even in these modern days still preserve much of the ghostly aboriginalness of Earth's primal generations. When the memory of the first man was a distant recollection, and all men his descendants, unknowing where, whence he came, eyed each other as real phantoms and asked of the sun and moon why they were created and to what end. One, though, according to Genesis, the angels indeed consorted with the daughters of men. The devils also, add the uncanonical rabbins, indulged in mundane amours. So this is where we're asking if, like, Fadala is the son of a devil. I don't think so. I think he's just saying, like, well, Asian people are primitive and they remind <laughs> me of like these myths about angels coming down and and fucking daughters of men and also the apocrypha say also some devils might have done that. Um so it's very racist. Um but in the like peculiar way of being racist towards Asian people that like western uh, the like the white Western gaze has, which is imputing this kind of like like inscrutability and wisdom and and closer to like the ultimate origins of of man. I don't know. It's hmm. it's weird. Stop talking about your fellow sailors like that, Ishmael. Like it's very uncomfortable. I always think, try to think about like. Who who Melville was writing for, like when he was writing things like this. And, you know, I, I'm a big believer and I know this has been discussed on the podcast before. And I'm a huge believer that a large portion of the writing of this entire book is because he is trying to impress uh, Hawthorne and get him get into his pants. And that I take as a given. Um, but the other sort of angle to that is, you know, I think about how Melville is this kind of figure in New York literary society. And, you know, it's the, so this kind of stuff to me always, always reads sort of like a, Hey, you don't know. I've been there. Let me tell you, like, this is what it's like out there to a bunch of people in Greenwich village who are like, is that true? I don't know. I mean, he, he seems like he's, you know, he's, he's got the experience and he's seems so like dangerous and well-traveled. And I, I guess, I guess we're supposed to believe that. Um, but it always sort of like makes me laugh to think of, you know, Melville trying to convince people in lower Manhattan uh, that he knows what he's talking about. Yeah, also he made his bones on these like very straight travel narratives. Um, 
yeah. like or what sort of launched his literary career and they're very much in the vein of like uh here's what the polynesian islands are like um you know with characteristic floridity but yeah i've been reading a lot of gothic literature lately um i i just read dracula and i'm in the middle of frankenstein of course those are from you know frankenstein is is from a couple decades before moby dick and dracula Mm -hmm. is from a couple of decades after but nonetheless like the way um dracula treats transylvania the sort of elaborate description of the carpathian mountains the way um frankenstein treats geneva and we have these very long descriptions of the alps i think there's a real thirst in an era in which travel is is comparatively rare um much like in our pandemic times (laughs) um there's a thirst to (laughs) yeah to hear about like both the physical and the sort of anthropological landscapes of different places. And so I think Melville also has his own past as a travel writer um, of like a white travel writer writing for a white audience that he's drawing from here where where he's sort of talking about like inscrutable Asiatics and whatnot. I mean, what's funny to me is the way that like white Western writing in many ways, even news has like, not really progressed that much. <laughs> hmm. Like there was just this story in the New York Times about how like like imputing something about Chinese foreign policy because they like included the number 14 in some memo and like the word 14 sounds like certain death in Mandarin and like so some Chinese like office buildings don't have the floor 14 because it's bad luck. Mm-hmm. Um, but like all the sort of China watchers that and like, you know, Chinese China watchers that I follow are like, come the fuck on. Like, what is this Orientalism <laughs> soup? And the way we write about the Middle East, too, is like their fiery passions and whatnot. So it's like. You know, in in some ways, we can mock or cringe at Melville for, you know, the like obvious sort of uh, othering ardor of his gaze, and in in other ways, even in like the pages of our purportedly sophisticated newspapers, um, especially regarding like Iran, the Middle East, um, you know, we have not progressed as much as one would like to think. So that's my thought for the day. Absolutely. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you a thing that, that trips me up here a lot is, and, uh, is trying to separate, like, do, do we think this is Melville or do we think this is Ishmael? And, and I, I will not pretend that I have read widely in the Melville um, canon. I haven't read umu and typey or white jacket um but i've read this many times and i've read deep on bartleby the scrivener and benito sereno his two great short stories and those three stories all have a major thing in common in that they're about protagonists who do not understand what's happening Mm. um and they are and a lot of the uh specifically even in bartleby and benito sereno 
the fun of the stories are the narrator is constantly wrong and the narrator is telling you these things and you as the reader become aware that they're getting it wrong. And I always apply that to these parts of, of, of Moby Dick. Are we supposed to read this as Melville being Melville or are we supposed to read this as Melville telling us Ishmael's point of view knowing that Ishmael is wrong about a lot of these things because we all know and we and we've uh, we know that he's a lot of the whale facts are wrong and you know is that Melville not knowing or is that Melville intentionally giving Ishmael stuff to say <laughs> that is wildly inaccurate because we shouldn't trust what he's saying I don't have an answer to that. It's just something that I, I wrestle with every time I every time I read this book is is how much to believe uh, Ishmael and and which Ishmael we're listening to. Is it the Ishmael who's on the boat or is it the older Ishmael who's telling us the story in retrospect? Right. I mean, I think it's a question without a sort of certain answer. I mean, I will say that um, the perspective is one of like a more experienced whaler. <laughs> than Ishmael with his singular journey would seem to be. Although, you, you know, even in this chapter where, where he talks about how whale, whale men are totally unshockable and the kind of, and, and in the, the following chapter where he talks about, you know, seamen in general and, and whalers in particular, uh, like there seems to be like a, a more longitudinal whaling perspective than than Ishmael with his sort of singular and also very like atypical journey might have. Um, on the other hand, like, I think it's slippery, right? I mean, um, I, <laughs> like it's, it's very hard to tell and that's part of the fun of it. I mean, I think that like, it, it's fun to speculate about and I look at each chapter and I look at this question individually um, because Sometimes we're very much in the character of Ishmael. Other times, the sort of observations that we are being given feel very much like the author's preoccupations and not tied very closely or at all to like the narrative of the Pequod in in particular. Um, sure, sure. There's a lot of sweeping considerations of human faith about just and nature and the sea and whatnot. So speaking of the sea and whatnot, let's talk about the spirit spout. Yeah. And you you mentioned that the spirit spout was useful for you in an adaptation of Moby Dick that you that you did. Well yeah, I worked on I I, I never finished it. Um which seems thematically, you know, resonant. Um, and it's something I do hope to get back to, um, back to at some point in the future. But the spirit spout is, is, you know, there's this moment in the spirit spout where like, they see this thing that looks like it's a whale and like, is it Moby Dick? Uh, it might be, it might not be. Do they ever find out? It's really spooky and dramatic. And, and, you know, I, a lot of the and a lot of the work that I've done, I would sort of even though we read the thing we read earlier is from a, a book. I, I primarily a lot of the work I I have done is as a dramatist, and I always 
look at these kinds of things with a dramatist's eye, which may may not be the right way to read anything or may, you know, <laughs> obscure or obfuscate uh, uh, important things. Um, but this this chapter to me always struck me as as a place where you could expand this out. Like a lot happens here in a very, very short period of time. And it's really dramatic. Um, this mysterious spout that shows up in the middle of the night. Well, so uh, I have to, yeah, what happens? Is, oh, sorry. You gotta tell us I what forgot happens that in part. this chapter. Be our, be our, you're going to walk me off the yeah. plank. Um, and in that time, I have to say, what happens no, yeah. <laughs> here is the Pequod goes around the Cape of Good Hope and they see the, um, they see a spout of a whale. Is it Moby Dick? Who knows? <laughs> yeah, it's this sort of phantom spout that, um, that keeps like cropping up. Um, and, and is it Moby Dick and what is it? They're haunted by a phantom possible whale. Um, and that's the spirit's out. Um, it's, it's a very moody chapter. Um, I would describe it as kind of, uh, tonal above all else. Uh, it's very spooky. Um, also still a little orientalist because Fadala is the one who initially cites the, the phantom spout. Um, and... And yet, it has some really lovely and evocative depictions of the sea around the Cape of Good Hope. Um, and so I think to close out our episode, um, I would like to um, read a little bit of it. Um, so the Cape of Good Hope, just to like situate us, you know, where we are um, geographically, it's um, it's the point where the currents of uh, the Atlantic and Indian Oceans meet. Um, it's, you know, very far south in Africa, although it is not the southernmost point in Africa. Um, and so uh, it is called the Cape of Good Hope, although, as Ishmael notes in this chapter, um, a Portuguese explorer uh, named Bartolomeu Diaz um, called the Cape the Cabo das Tormentas, the Cape of Storms. Um, and that was, you know, so it's a very stormy um, like area. Uh, it's also near Cape Town, um, which is uh, South Africa, which is, you know, named for it. Um, and it sort of marks this this physical halfway point in the kind of perambulating circumnavigation that the Pequod is doing in search of its prey. Um, and so, I yeah, so I wonder, um, I'd like to read the second paragraph because I think it's lovely. Um, if So if you would not mind. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The one that starts it was while gliding. Yeah, so they're they're off the they're off okay. the mouth of the Rio de la Plata and um they're south of St. Helena and and here we go. Here's what happens. Okay. It was while gliding through these latter waters that one serene and moonlit night, when all the waves rolled by like scrolls of silver, 
and by their soft, suffusing seethings, made what seemed a silvery silence, not a solitude. On such a silent night, a silvery jet was seen far in advance of the white bubbles at the bow. Lit up by the moon, it looked celestial, seemed some plumed and glittered god uprising from the sea. Fidala first described this jet, for of these moonlight nights, it was his wont to mount to the mainmast head and stand a lookout there with the same precision as if it had been day. And yet, though herds of whales were seen by night, not one whaleman in a hundred would venture a lowering for them. You may think with what emotions, then, the seaman beheld this old oriental perched aloft at such unusual hours, his turban in the moon, companions in one sky. But when, after spending his uniform interval there for several successive nights without uttering a single sound, when, after all this silence, his unearthly voice was heard announcing that a silvery, moonlit jet, every reclining mariner started to his feet as if some winged spirit had lighted in the rigging and hailed the mortal crew. There she blows! Had the trump of judgment blown, they could not have quivered more. Yet still they felt no terror, rather pleasure. For though it was a most unwanted hour, yet so impressive was the cry, and so deliriously exciting, that almost every soul on board instinctively desired a lowering. Yeah, it's definitely a very Orientalist gaze, but um, it's just such lovely description. I mean, um, I definitely noticed yeah. the alliteration, like in that those first couple of sentences and the sort of image of the turban. Those, the S's, all the S sounds. Yeah, and the... Um, the image of a turban and a moon, like as one in the sky, is sort of lovely. Um, yeah, and so so then um, the silvery jet, you know, so they 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 almost lower, but then the silvery jet disappeared, and then they start calling it the midnight spout um, because it keeps appearing, um, you know, mysteriously jetted into the clear moonlight and disappearing again, and then appearing. Um, you know, the solitary jet seemed forever alluring us on. Um, and then we learn a little, we talk a little bit about how sailors are. So, nor with the immemorial superstition of their race, and in accordance with the preternaturalness, as it seemed, which in many things invested the Pequod, were there wanting some of the seamen who swore that whenever and wherever described, at however remote times or in however far apart latitudes and longitudes, that unnearable spout was cast by one selfsame whale, and that whale Moby Dick. For a time there reigned, too, a sense of peculiar dread at this flitting apparition, as if it were treacherously beckoning us, beckoning us on and on, in order that the monster might turn round upon us and rend us at last in the remotest and most savage seas. Um, yeah, so... Um, so they voyage along through through savage seas and then they reach the Cape of Good Hope and it is very stormy. Um, and so I wonder if you could read um, the third to last paragraph and then I'll read the, the second to last. The one starting Cape of Good Hope. Yeah. So I mean, so okay. so yeah. So so basically, like, sorry. Um, just to go over what we're skipping, um, there are strange forms in the water around the, the, the boat around the Pequod, and also 
um, sea ravens, which I don't know if that's hmm. a thing or what he's referring to, but clearly these like ill omened kind of birds are clinging to uh, clinging to the ship. And so they're unheaved and heaved, still unrestingly heaved the Black Sea as if its vast tides were conscience. And the great mundane soul were in anguish and remorse for the long sin and suffering it had bred. Cape of Good Hope, do they call ye? Rather, Cape Tormentoso, as called of yore. For long allured by the perfidious silences that before had attended us, we found ourselves launched into this tormented sea, where guilty beings transformed into those fowls and these fish seem condemned to swim on everlastingly without any haven in store, or beat that black air without any horizon. But calm, snow-white, and unvarying, still directing its fountain of feathers to the sky, still beckoning us on from before, the solitary jet would at times be described. During all this blackness of the elements, Ahab, though assuming for the time the almost continual command of the drenched and dangerous deck, manifested the gloomiest reserve and more seldom than ever addressed his mates. In tempestuous times like these, after everything above and aloft has been secured, nothing more can be done but passively to await the issue of the gale. Then captain and crew become practical fatalists. So with his ivory leg inserted into its accustomed hole, and with one hand firmly grasping a shroud, Ahab for hours and hours would stand gazing dead to windward, while an occasional squall of sleet or snow would all but congeal his very eyelashes together. Meantime, the crew, driven from the forward part of the ship by the perilous seas that burstingly broke over its bows, stood in a line along the bulwarks in the waist. And the better to guard against the leaping waves, each man had slipped himself into a sort of bowline secured to the rail, in which he swung as in a loosened belt. Few or no words were spoken, and the silent ship, as if manned by painted sailors in wax, day after day tore on through all the swift madness and gladness of the demoniac waves. By night the same muteness of humanity before the shrieks of the ocean prevailed. Still in silence, the men swung in the bowlines. Still wordless, Ahab stood up to the blast. This is very dramatic. It's very dramatic. The thrust is congealing on his eyelashes. Very serious business. And the men are painted in wax. And it's just, it's all very mysterious. Um, And it's serious and it's spooky. And did you know this was an ominous journey, Jay? Because I hadn't got the hint yet. I hadn't either. I, you know, I thought Elijah was, you know, telling us to, you know, have a good time. Has there been any foreshadowing yet? (laughs) I think the foreshadowing has foreshadowing. Has there been any foreshadowing yet? I don't... Has there been enough? I don't know. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. No. The foreshadowing is a five... It's a foreshadowing. It's a five shadowing. There's a five o'clock shadow all over this book. Um, I love it. It's so beautiful. Like every time 
Melville describes the sea, I just want to like get on a boat and like yeah. be tossed by the waves and confront my own soul. Um, instead, I am just planning not to leave my apartment for the next three months. That is probably, probably a good plan. Yeah. I'm like, you know, except to go to the grocery store on occasion and maybe like take a civically permitted outdoor walk <laughs> in whatever. I yeah. wish that there was a spirit spout spurring me on. Um, so I am going to ask you the question I've asked every guest. Yes. And I'm sure you know what, what I'm going to say. So Just I thought long and hard about on a whaling this journey. In, in kind of a panic because um, I couldn't really think of anything. And then I thought of the perfect thing because as we have seen, as Herman has shown, shown us, what do people on a whaling journey do when they're not, you know, following spirits spout and stuff? They put on little plays. So I would bring with me a copy of the complete works of Shakespeare so I could draft the crew into the impromptu little scenes um, when, you know, we weren't drinking rum out of other harpoons and, you know, stuff like that. Swearing blood oath. Yeah. I love that. I think yeah. that you would make a very fetching Rosalind <laughs> um, in As You Like It. Challenge accepted. Um, and Ahab would make a very <laughs> and Ahab would make a very growly Henry V. Yes. Um, I love that. I've been thinking, and I, especially thinking about the spirit spout um, and all of its sort of very sibilant descriptions of the sea, I was thinking it would be cool to bring like a um, tape recorder along and just mm. get sort of the soundscape yeah. of a whaling journey. That's my pretentious desire today. And also a lot of protein bars. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. In case I tire of like whale fat. Mm. um well jay thank you so much i really appreciate it and to our readers uh sorry listeners readers whatever um i hope that you find the appropriate groove in your thigh board for yourself um i hope that um you are not uh a you do not encounter beelzebub on your whale boat um, and I hope that you find the mysterious spirit spout in your life that will allure you on and on. Um, and until next time, this has been Moby Dick Energy. Big energy, big energy. Ooh.